welcome to the digital patient where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is SeamlessMD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. David Houghton. Dr. Houghton earned his medical degree from the Medical College of Georgia and his master's in public health and epidemiology from Emory University. He completed his internship, neurology residency, and movement disorders fellowship at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. After then serving as the assistant professor and neurology residence program director at the University of Louisville, Dr. Houghton joined the staff at Oceaner Health in 2012 as the chief of the division of movement and memory disorders and vice chair of the Department of Neurology. Since 2016, he has also served as the medical director of Oceaner Telemedicine, harnessing technology to create unique virtual clinical connections between Oceaner's providers and patients across the Gulf South. In 2019, his role expanded to help drive remote patient monitoring as medical director of Oceaner's digital medicine. He is proud to lead the nationally recognized HDSA Center of Excellence at Oceaner Health, serving Huntington's disease patients from across the Gulf South. Dr. Houghton has been awarded System Physician of the Month, Top 75 Physician, and Neurology Teaching Faculty of the Year. He's also studied further with the Health Management Academy Physician Leadership Program in 2018 and Harvard Business School Consortium for Community Health in 2020. Dr. Houghton is board certified in neurology and his publications have appeared in peer-reviewed journals and online medical text, a patient resource from the National Parkinson's Foundation, and a textbook on deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. Dr. Houghton, David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you both for having me. It's an honor to be here. Amazing. We'll have to dive deep into the, some of the brain the deep brain stimulation work that you're doing. Uh, but maybe we'll save that for another episode because today we do want to focus on uh, some more recent uh, digital endeavors that you're doing. You know, David, we are super excited to bring you on the show today. You've been involved with digital care uh, for a number of years, decades now. I think first your involvement was with Oceaner Health's uh, telehealth program with pediatric cardiology patients way, way back in the day. And then more recently launching Oceaner's Connected Health program in 2018. Uh, but prior to getting involved in all this digital care, your focus was on neurology uh, as the chief, as I mentioned in the bio of uh, the Division of Movement and Memories Disorders. And I have to imagine that there's some sort of link there between neurology and your patients and how you got involved with digital and, and you know, really how that came to be. So I was curious to start the conversation. What was your aha moment uh, that really started this journey into digital health? Well, thanks very much. And it's, it has been an aha moment and several of those moments over the, the last more than a decade at this point. You're correct. You know, Ochsner's journey into virtual health really did start with virtual echocardiography and other pediatric cardiology programs. But I have to say that that even predated my arrival there um, 10 years ago. And those programs were there more than 20 years ago. So very proud to have joined an organization in 2012 that had already been a cut above in many, in many aspects about the ways that virtual care could reach particularly vulnerable patient populations across the Gulf South. Um, but you're right, when I got here 10 years ago, I was really focused on growing clinical excellence and efficiency and research trials and, and helping my colleagues in neurology. I was the 10th neurologist hired in our organization. And now we have more than 50 in our neurology group, more than 100 practitioners between neurology, neurosurgery, 
neurocritical care and others in the neurosciences. And so as our clinical care was growing, um, I was similarly fortunate to get to work um, with my original chairman there, Dr. Ken Gaines and what he was doing in telestroke. And as they were building more telemedicine programs around that, and when he eventually left and was uh, replaced by our current chair and, and my, my friend and colleague, Dr. Rich Zweifler, um, I guess it was the organization just tapping the guy who kept asking questions about uh, what more things we could do on the telemedicine front. And we had already started to do not only the, the cardiology that you mentioned, some um, nephrology programs, some non-stroke neurology. We had a tele-ICU that had been built. Telepsychiatry was starting to grow its roots. Um, but from my perspective, I was fortunate to get exposed to this even when I was in medical school at the Medical College of Georgia with Dr. David Hess and the stroke program there. And I was at the University of Louisville, as you mentioned, with Dr. Kerry Remmel, Dr. Ray Dorsey, who's a, a, a titan in the, in the digital health field, particularly as it relates to Parkinson's disease, was a co-resident of mine when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. So I, I think I've had some accidental mentorship along the way um, that's been really fortuitous. Uh, and it been it's fun to be a part of. And, and David, I got to say, you are the first neurologist I think we've met who's leading digital health at, at a health system. Um, was that accidental? Is there a reason why uh, it makes sense for folks from neurology to be leading this charge? Um, how, how did that happen? Well, I think it's probably two things. One, um, neurologists are sometimes affectionately called nerdologists. So we're pretty good when it comes to digital, uh, digital capabilities and, and, and like to tinker with things. And so probably it, it's not surprising that most of the earliest telemedicine networks in this country have been telestroke first. And so I think it makes a lot of sense when you see um, other neurologists who are interested in this, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm not alone in that respect, um, but I think the other feature there is that um, neurology, in fact, is the, is the endpoint of a lot of the, the problems with chronic disease management. So hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, obesity, um, all of these things are making up the predominant vascular risk factors that we see. And along with causing heart attacks and heart failure, they're the ones that cause the strokes. And we know that poor vascular health is a risk factor for things like Alzheimer's disease. And so even, an, even a, a, a neurologist, even a Parkinson's disease doctor like myself who takes care of an aging patient population really began to appreciate the chances to meet patients where they are, to think differently, particularly with older patients or patients who aren't as mobile as, as, as some of the younger ones might be, to try to find ways to reach them and use technology to augment and complement that. So um, it's been a good fit for me and, and I think there's more of us out there. Well, hopefully after this episode, there will be as well. <laughs> Should expand the reach. Um, David, it's interesting. I'll make some calls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's interesting you mentioned, uh, you know, your work in neurology is around these patients that have um, built up a lifetime of, you know, different uh, circumstances that have maybe led them to where they are today. And in a video chronicling uh, your day-to-day -day life that is available online, you shared your views. I thought this part was really interesting. You shared your views on why empathy is critical for all aspects of medicine, um, really because it builds that trust between a, a provider and, a, and its patient. And I think it's interesting as well, you, you mentioned you'd prefer to almost work with patients over their entire life, like a 15-year journey with them. 
And um, so I'm curious, you know, how does that perspective play when you're taking a look at how digital can maybe um, uh, really help your reach uh, in these patients? How does how do your views on keeping with the patient over their lifetime shape the uh, views that you have on where digital can help out in, uh, uh, in establishing these lifelong patient relationships? Yeah, that's a great question. And if, if you look at even some recent surveys in the last two or four months have been published, there remains uh, an undercurrent of concern amongst physicians and other practitioners about gaps in their ability to connect with a patient if they're relying more heavily on, on digital medicine or other telehealth connections. And, and I think on the surface, that may make sense that you have less personal touches as part of a more digital relationship. Um, but in fact, I, I think there's some paradoxical benefits there. And there's similarly been publications, particularly in the psychiatry and other mental health literature that indicate the same thing, that um, when you are connecting with a patient on their time, in their domain, where they are, not just physically, but also emotionally, mentally on their healthcare journey. Um, it, in my opinion, and, and others have, have, have found the same thing, maybe easier to, to become empathic. You know, with sympathy, you feel for someone, but with empathy, you feel with them. And if you are with them, um, if you're making that virtual connection into their home, sort of like the, the old uh, traditional house calls, where I'm seeing a patient sitting at their dining room table or sitting on their couch with their family around them. And I can see the, the gallery of family portraits behind them. And I can hear the, the, the dog barking in the background. I think that's actually a unique advantage to, to make that connection um, because that patient has invited you into their home much differently than us inviting them into our clinic, which can feel significantly more sterile. Um, and so I think uniquely, whether it be forward-facing episodic telemedicine care or what we do in our Oxford Digital Medicine program with back-channel chronic disease management, remote patient management, with things like digital coaching and, and personalized coaching, I think there's actually some unique advantages in new ways that we can create those empathic touches with our patients. And David, actually, that's a great topic. We did want to dive a bit more into the work you're doing with the digital medicine program at, at Alshern. I think we were reading, you've done some great work on, I think it was hypertension and maternity care and other um, areas. Um, just for folks who are unfamiliar, could you share a bit more about um, the digital medicine program, what it is a day, um, what use cases you're working on? And also, I'm also curious, how do you decide which use case to enter next? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And and I did, I referenced our, our digital medicine program. So I began working on the telemedicine front, that sort of traditional forward-facing episodic care, like I mentioned back in 2016. And then at the end of 2019, just a stone's throw away from our first case of, of COVID-19, um, I took on an, an additional role working with my dyad partner, uh, Julie Henry, as the she's the COO of our Oxford Digital Medicine outfit. And the way that that had grown within our organization was through our Innovation Oxford Suite, our research and development wing that has been led by Dr. Rich Milani, a preventive cardiologist, Amy Quark, Jonathan Wilt, um, other fantastic colleagues to really build that new and different way of taking care of chronic diseases at home and to go beyond remote patient monitoring, but really get to the crux of management where we realize that when things are working best, you have an engaged and personalized health coach 
to be shoulder to shoulder with a patient. You've got the right medicines being prescribed at the right time and the right circumstances with emphasis on compliance for the patients. And then lastly, you've got an uh, ongoing wheel of data that gets circulated between the patients and, and, and their care team, not just getting two or three blood pressures per year or the, or the reported blood sugar measurements that, that only are accompanied by hemoglobin A1C for diabetes management a couple of times a year, but literally 30 or 40 times the amount of, of data being driven between patients and a care team so that we can be reactive and proactive to take care of those diseases. And so as those have grown in our organization, um, I wake up every day thinking of new ways that really we can merge them together where we can use remote management along with episodic healthcare, uh, tele telehealth care, and think about what that next step will be. You asked about how we decide sort of where we go from here. And, and I'm fortunate, um, even before I went to medical school, I, uh, and I got my master's in public health and epidemiology at Emory, as you mentioned, I was able to work at the CDC and, and with a liaison to the World Health Organization um, named Dr. Brian McCarthy. He was a, a, a pediatrician and a, and a clinical researcher. And as we were working together on new public health initiatives, and I was a, a, a spry kid right out of college, he taught me about the five A's, and there's been lots of A's that have been proposed over the years, but I use those A's uh, almost every day with my team to think about what we're going to do, and happy to share them here. So um, the first A is appropriate. So should we be doing this? It's not just because we have a digital device that we could do something, but should we do it? Will it really offer something, at least right out of the gate, that we think a patient would, would do better from and that a provider would embrace? So is that an appropriate thing to do? Then we bundle three other A's. How is it going to be accessible? Meaning what sort of digital tools do we use? How's it going to be available? Are the hours of operation or are there limitations from, from a geographic perspective? And how can we make it affordable? We need to make it affordable to patients. We need to make it affordable to a healthcare organization. We need to make it affordable to the, to the, the, the grander, um, you know, four and a half trillion dollar healthcare spend in this country. Um, and so once you get those together, then the fifth A, um, is will this be acceptable? And if you work hard on your other four A's and you're, and you're aligning your stakeholders all along the way, then nine times out of 10, you come up with a product that is acceptable. It's the right thing to do. You've done your due diligence and you now feel like you're really onto something. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Alice Arkello, just recently mentioned to me um, that we need a sixth A and that's accelerate. And I think she's exactly right. How do we then get that product out there, not only in our own backyard for our patients, but even in a, in a business model to be able to expand it um, nationally or internationally? And when you think about that, it is Oshner providing um, these digital medicine programs um, um, geographically beyond your typical face-to-face -face encounters? Like, have you gone like to multiple states that you otherwise wouldn't normally be serving? Absolutely. You know, we learned a lot about the value of uh, what, what we call our, our virtual provider network during the pandemic, early on harnessing the advantages of, of some of the relaxation of, of, of licensure requirements, state-specific licensure requirement for, for physicians and other providers. We use that experience and the time afforded by it to get permanent licensure, multi-state licensure for many of our physicians. And we built a core of physicians, both in the 
urgent care space, in the neurology space for, for stroke and other non-stroke neurology, the psychiatric space, intensive care space, to have multiple states available as we continue to expand. Another way that we've now gone um, and we're in all 50 states live is with our digital medicine programs for diabetes and hypertension, partnering with, with payers, with, with other insurance brokers, uh, large employers, even other health systems um, to try to sort of spread the good word, if you will, about the advantages of, again, not just a, a health and wellness program or not just a remote patient monitoring program, but that soup to nuts management program in a focus factory that, that does medication management, does coaching, um, and really transfers the data seamlessly. That's, inc that's incredible. I, and actually, I'm not quite sure if I've heard of another health system who's provided that entire full stack of, let's say, virtual diabetes management. I mean, obviously, there's certain, I think, some companies who've done it, but this, I think Austin might be the first that I've heard of that's actually delivered at that scale. So that's, that's actually really phenomenal. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And, and again, the, the, the most important thing that I've learned here working as just a simple neurologist in the space is to be able to work in a large health system that's now 80 years old. Um, and really recognizing that having a forward think, thinking, digitally connected, but traditional health system in its own mind, we think is, is, the, is the special sauce. There's, there's lots of partnerships that we've forged with excellent um, third-party organizations, excellent tech companies, um, places that frankly can, can accelerate faster than we can in some respects and certainly have the funding to do it um, through various funding rounds. But ultimately at the end of the day, when there, there is already enormous trust for patients built into health systems that they've been around for years or that they're even being introduced to for the first time, um, we think that we thread the needle by taking that, that digital approach within the four walls of a traditional healthcare system. And I guess the other piece too is um, as a health system, you have a history of having a very high bar for evidence-based medicine for quality, for patient safety. And I think, you know, we've seen, unfortunately, some cases in the recent past where um, some, you know, private companies that don't have that history or, or that DNA of quality and, and evidence-based medicine have run some trouble, um, let's call it um, focusing more on margins than mission. But I guess as a health system, you know, mission, margins are uh, maybe a part of the, the journey to get to mission, but the mission is, is the most important thing. So I think that's probably standing out more in the recent past than ever before. Yeah, I agree with you, Josh. I mean, I think um, ultimately the benefits of our academic group practice is that we 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 strive to work towards a common purpose, and and whether that be sort of wrapped up into the individual work of an individual physician at that moment, where they're seeing that patient with CHF in their clinic, or they're seeing that patient with dementia or lupus or or cancer, but what what really broadens that and has been effective at broadening it, even from when the, the five founders of the Oxford Clinic did their thing 80 years ago, has been a, a higher and greater purpose to take care of community. And as our community spread from New Orleans to the southern part of Louisiana to the entire states now across the Gulf South, it's actually been a fairly easy transition. Geography actually got in the way a lot more before there was digital health. And so we've, we've learned a lot about the advantages of, of being able to spread our wings and take care of more patients that, that we think benefit from our care. But we've also been able to cut down on the windshield time now with the way that we use telemedicine and digital health. Amazing. That's great. So actually, David, I do wanna rehash uh, some old memories of yours. This is uh, after launching the Oceaners Care Connect 360. I think that's what it was coined back then. Uh, the platform in 2018, you participated in a Facebook Live 
And uh, you gave a whole bunch of, you know, great points on what the program's all about and what it's going to do to revolutionize care. Um, but there was one part in there that I really, you know, thought was profound. You voiced your enthusiasm for um, the digital care and, and what it can do to the healthcare system, but then also your concerns around health disparities and why it's important to consider how digital could play an unintended role in further segmenting and siloing care uh, if it wasn't implemented properly. And obviously that's extremely relevant today. So what can we do to proactively prevent this greater digital divide uh, from occurring within our communities? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, we are in, in driven um, and most sensitive about some of our most traditional vulnerable patient populations, whether that be segmented by geography, you know, urban versus rural or race or gender identity, age, payer groups um, or others. There, there is an opportunity um, with every interaction that we have with a family to realize where they are. And as I mentioned earlier, what better way to sort of reach somebody where they are than being able to utilize technology, but also utilize the technology that's right for them. So we have to focus as much as we can on that which is most ubiquitous and as simple as possible. By the way, that's important for our healthcare providers too. We like simple, and I'll, I'll tell you that from personal experience. But sometimes that means leveraging audio only visits or two-way texting. Um, sometimes that means making sure that the Bluetooth connections are easy and there's extremely low bandwidth requirements for data sharing, particularly like we see with a lot of our digital medicine programs. Sometimes it means making sure that we do have expanded hours of operations, recognizing that um, now more than ever, many of our, our patients or their families work, work two jobs, work, work second or third shifts, and to be able to be available for them um, when they're most available to us is really critical. And the combinations of different telemedicine and, and digital health programs, I think, plug a lot of those holes really well. Um, in, my, in my clinical work, um, we'll have extended hours in clinic, we'll do, we'll do weekend clinics, um, but the reality is, is that those have been uh, expanded much more simply um, by using the technology that we now have at our fingertips. And, and we've looked carefully across different groups in our region um, with, a, with a keen eye to, to look for ways that we're failing, the ways that we're not reaching some of our most vulnerable patient populations. And, and I'm proud to say that we've uncovered very few. And I'm also proud to say that we're at the head of a of an, uh, a handful of initiatives in our organization um, to help create and, and maintain a healthier state of Louisiana. Um, our, our CEO, Warner Thomas, announced just over a year ago of a new initiative called 40 by 30. And what that means is that we strive to improve to 40th out of 50 in most metrics of general health, as far as the country is concerned, by 2030. Now, if you're one or two or even in the top 20 right now, no one would aspire to be 40th. Um, but Louisiana is usually 49th, sometimes 50th. And so for us to be able to make that big swing in only a handful of years when every other state's trying to improve also shows that there is, there is dedication um, and determination all the way from, from the executives that help lead our organization down to, to the, the, the physicians and other healthcare providers that are the boots on the ground to really do things differently. And if we don't um, 
have an eye on parity of care and we don't focus on vulnerable patient populations, we won't be successful in our 40 by 30 initiatives. Um, that being said, I think we will be. That's awesome. Uh, I love how you, um, you made an earlier point about needing to reach patients in the way in which they expect to be reached. And, you know, there's no one size fits all intervention, even for digital. I think that's a really great point. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you more about uh, also the provider side in terms of, um, have you yet seen digital and uh, more technology enabled opportunities at health systems like Oceaner be a recruiting mechanism yet? Like, are you seeing clinicians say, hey, I want to go to Oshner and practice there because I want to have more digital in my practice and my work, whether it's with patients or even clinical workflows. Is that happening just yet or are we not quite there as, a, as an industry? We're there. Um, and for us, we're seeing it sort of in, in two ways. One is we have some current and future, mostly healthcare providers, physician, APP, social workers, et cetera, that are purposefully looking to come to us for the opportunity to do more, more digital work, more telemedicine work. Um, sometimes those are career shifts. Um, priorities change during the pandemic. People realize that they had, um, they either experienced unique benefits to seeing patients via digital and other technology means, or they had other reasons in their personal life that they wanted to expand their career to that. And so that's been um, a, a win for us. Um, there's been ways that we've been able to retain folks that had opportunities to, to, uh, to move and whether it be a spouse or, or other family needs to, to locate in a different place. But because of the mechanisms that we already had built even prior to the pandemic, they've been able to move seamlessly and continue to work in a, in a digital fashion. And then we're also starting to see it in patients who are, excuse me, in providers that are coming in just in a traditional bricks and mortar sense. Um, these are millennials and, and starting to hire some Gen Zs in, in different ways. And, and you can you can be certain that um, their life experiences are a heck of a lot more digital than us Gen Xers were at one point. And, and for them, it's almost table stakes to, to get them in the front door, look at what their, what their career path looks like, look at the ways that we can put their clinic schedule together um, right out of the gate. They want to know what are my opportunities to, to see patients via telemedicine. And we say, uh, your opportunities abound here. And it's a it's an exciting time to try to build those types of, of networks for those providers. How much has this kind of seeped into your um, academic curriculum? Um, like, are you, um, like, do you have residents who are uh, doing a lot of like digital care and, and telehealth now? Like, let's say for neurology, is that, is that like a really common part of the curriculum at all? Or, or how does that kind of woven itself into things? It's a, it's a great question. I can tell you a little bit about our journey with this. Um, four or five years ago, as we were starting to ramp up, particularly our hospital-based telemedicine programs, I'd mentioned stroke, psychiatry, um, some, some other subspecialty work with, with cardiology, nephrology. We had our tele-ICU. We, we saw residents and fellows starting to trickle through those rotations. And um, we you know, got in, in touch with a lot of our service lines, our independent residency and fellowship programs and, and offered our assistance to, to sort of teach website manner and, and ways to understand um, the, the, the right ways to, to practice telehealth. At that point, we even um, kicked around the idea of creating at the GME level, at the graduate medical education level at Oxford, which has, um, you know, hundreds of, of, of residents go through it, 
um, a telemedicine um, elective where they would just work outside the traditional clinic or whatever their traditional clinic was, whether it be neurology or infectious disease or oncology and learn telemedicine. What happened so quickly between us thinking about that and it continued to accelerate and become part of every service line's uh, daily work is we didn't need to create that because we blinked and every residency program started to get exposure to our residents along the way. So when somebody is in the neurology department, as, as, as you asked, I have a resident working with me in my movement disorder in Parkinson's clinic. Um, I'll have a half day of a virtual clinic and they sit in the room with me. Um, and when we were all remote, we had the technology available that they could join as the third party and they were in the background also. And so that style of you know, hands-on, getting it in front of you way of learning um, sort of is the traditional way that all residencies are taught. And so it makes sense that it'd be no different for telemedicine. Our idea is to sort of spend a month learning what telemedicine is fizzle before it could get started and it was a good thing i guess probably it won't be long before um we're going to see formal digital medicine fellowships pop up maybe you'll have one in a number of years at, at alshner and uh it's going to be a very common thing i, I think for a lot of um residents wanting to go into digital and clinical informatics sooner and uh it's gonna be really exciting to see how that that changes over the next you know 10 20 years i think you're right we look forward to being on the forefront of that as well that's great. So, uh, David, you know, you've talked a little bit about how the explosion of digital medicine has really taken off, obviously, throughout the pandemic. Prior to COVID, I read Oceaner was doing roughly 300 televisits per month. And then once COVID hit, that number skyrocketed to like 27,000 per month, which is an insane growth rate. So was really curious, you know, what were some of the major hurdles that you had to overcome to support that type of growth? Uh, well, the first thing that, that I learned uh, then and there is, is, and while it sounds cliched, is that it truly took a village. I, to, make, to already have built, but then continue to strengthen relationships with IS and our EPIC partners internally, our marketing groups, our patient experience team, the service line leaders that were uh, front and center, what, what was happening in hospital medicine. We, any hurdle that we, that we encountered was much more easily overcome with a with with a group thinking about it, um, and the comfort level to be able to to get in front of a group and say, "I'm not sure how we're going to figure this out. We need help." Um, than to than to be strong but wrong and and think that we could go it alone. And so, um, early on, that was that was our our best learnings when things were really really rapidly changing in March and April of of, of 2020. Uh, recall that that was right after. Mardi Gras season then, and, and so along with the other uh, major early outbreaks on the East and West Coast, uh, here we were in the Gulf South undergoing the same outbreaks. But I can remember well, in fact, um, that week of Mardi Gras break, making phone calls um, back to the team saying, look, uh, this COVID-19 thing's real, things coming, we're gonna need to think about how we're gonna use telemedicine and we're gonna use it wisely and early. And we, we quickly got together and came up with a three-pronged plan. How could telemedicine and digital programs help emergent needs, seeing patients in the ER, seeing patients that were being admitted to the hospital? How could they take care of urgent needs? That was that wide berth of patients who thought they might be infected or who needed more information or needed to be screened, needed to be tested at our urgent cares and primary care slots. And what could we do chronically? What were we going to do 
when the world shut down to make sure that our diabetic patients were still uh, following their, their appropriate diets, medications, and keeping their chronic diseases under control, hypertension, high cholesterol. Uh, what were our cancer patients going to be doing to make sure that they got their chemotherapies at home? So we really bracketed everything that we did in the emergent, urgent, and chronic care buckets. And then um, as, as, we, as we walked through it um, and we, we had a challenge, uh, we, we overcame it. One unique story that I like to tell is uh, some, some late, early and late nights on the hospital medicine units when we had dozens of iPads that, that, we, were, that we had available um, to be deployed um, into the hospital for, uh, for, for doing telemedicine right then and there from between two walls in an, in an ICU or on the regular floor. And the purpose there, of course, to keep the patient safest and the respiratory therapist safe and the physician safe. But you know what we didn't have? We didn't have iPad holders. Um, and so we have a 3D printing outfit and we ran those 3D printers all night, printing out different covers and cases that would fit the iPads. And that with a few zip ties and some IV poles made a lot of, of uh, telemedicine carts on a stick in, a, in about 48 hours. And so that was the type of ingenuity that um, I know uh, almost every health system across the country went through, um, but it was certainly uh, gratifying to see our crew always jump in and be able to come up with a new solution for whatever problem there was that day. That's awesome. I, th I think it, you know, it goes to show just how ready you are to take on anything that needs to be done. So, you know, a good example of that, I, I was reading through, you know, we're talking about these staff shortages that are happening today. And I think it was an estimated last year of maybe 6,000 nursing jobs that were open at Bochner. And, um, you know, I read you actually went and did some additional training to help out with all these different things. So taking blood draws and using catheters, et cetera, um, taking off the white coat to speak. And so I, I really respect not only your ability to adapt and overcome to some of these challenges when it came to, you know, this explosion of digital, but just wherever the help is needed, you really step up to the plate. And, um, you know, regardless of the title that you have, it's, it's your responsibility to take care of these patients. And I just think that's really admirable. So kudos on that. But I'm curious on, on that front, you know, is there an update on that situation regarding staff shortages? And, and how has that experienced over the last two years really shaped how you think about leadership? Well, you're, you're kind of bringing up that story. And um, I, I was just a small part of a big need, I think. There was many positions across the organization that, that did different things in different times. Dr. Armin Schubert, um, one of our uh, uh, senior anesthesiologists sort of came up with this idea. It was during the second wave, uh, one of the second or third wave, when early on in the first waves, we had doctor shortages. And so we had lots of um, non-ICU physicians and others taking other shifts. And then with the next waves, we had a lot of nursing shortages and, and um, we had doctors that were available to do that stuff. Now I'll tell you, um, doctors make pretty lousy nurses in general, myself included. And so it was, uh, it was humbling and yet not at all surprising when I got there and, and, and for, for, you know, for a couple of shifts, um, they were kind, they, 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 they were easy on us compared to what their jobs are. They got the hardest job in the hospital. Um, I was proud to have, have, have gotten an IV on a first try. I was proud to help out with, with, with bathing patients and getting them ice chips and, and, 
Uh, I really enjoyed using the Pixis machine. That's the thing that automatically dispenses the medications. I think most of us physicians were in awe of that. And we got a lot of eye rolls from the nurses. <laughs> they, they, they see it every day. Um, the good news is, is that we are, we are not in the same place right now, either with this pandemic or, or hopefully uh, any others to come anytime soon to have to have physicians um, play nurse. Um, that being said, I think it did two really important things. One, um, it really galvanized an organization um, to, to sort of reiterate that, that motto of, you know, any, any port in a storm. And, and um, for us who have weathered a lot of storms, many of them literal storms, we're right in Hurricane Alley down here, there's always examples of where people who not only work at the top of their license, but are absolutely willing to work at any license when, when, when you get in a, in, a, in, a, in a jam. And so one, it really galvanized that. Two, I think it did give us a heads up about thinking differently about the ways that we could support those sorts of things in the future. And so, you know, we have continued to build virtual nursing types of products in our organization in different ways that we can offload some of the, the, the bedside nursing needs, reduce um, length of stay for patients and put them in different settings in our, in our hospital system where they will do best with more digital monitoring and maybe less human capital right there at the immediate bedside. So all of these experiences of, of, of my and other, my other colleagues shedding our white coat reminded us that to have a nurse connect virtually is probably better than have a doctor be there in person. And so the reality is, is that we, we can continue to build those things and uh, it'll work better for everybody. I just say I'm impressed, uh, David, that you were able to get an IV right on the first try. I remember when I when I rotated through anesthesia, I had a lot of failed uh, IVs, and uh, probably why I didn't end up uh, getting to anesthesia. So <laughs> I I take a lot of pride in that. Judge. So when when I was a resident, I was uh, for a while I was the guy. You know, if you needed if you need to get a blood draw in the middle of the night, we didn't have phlebotomy teams back in the dark ages of residency for me. And and so Houghton was someone they could call if they if they needed to get a Get an, get an IV or get a stick. I was well out of practice, I'll tell you that. And for plenty of other things that I, that I was not as good at. And so, but happy that I could, I could, I could draw a clean stick. Well, well now, that, now that the audience has heard it, you might get more calls soon, so. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I guess, uh, David, maybe I um, want to touch a bit on um, some, somewhere else where you, you said, you know, healthcare technology has allowed your patients to take a more active role in their care um, so there's this huge, um, I wouldn't say new, but at least from a digital point of view, relatively new paradigm of digital patient empowerment and patients being partners in their own care. When you think about the next um, couple of years of digital health transformation, what are the types of um, digital patient empowered opportunities that you're most excited about? Yeah, I, I, I love this part of the story. And it's one that really effectively stretches across a lot of the work we're doing, whether you know, we're measuring patient activation as part of our digital medicine programs, whether we're measuring net promoter scores from our patients that talks about how much they appreciate the program and how much they, 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 they would recommend it to somebody else. Um, to actually, your point earlier about uh, healthcare parity and, and, and vulnerable patient populations. You know, we at the height of the pandemic um, made a decision to expand our digital medicine program to our, our Medicaid patient population in the state. And that was a, that was a, that was a no brainer 
from a from a, a right thing to do perspective, but it was a financial uh, uh, obligation for us to do because in the state of Louisiana, Medicaid does not have the usual uh, payer mechanisms to cover remote patient monitoring. And as I've said earlier, our management program really doesn't fit well into the CMS remote patient monitoring codes anyway. So um, we were able to leverage uh, two rounds, fortunately, of, of, of grant funding from the FCC, um, $2 million total that we're able to use part of to cover the costs of glucometers and blood pressure monitors and other supplies um, to, in a compliant fashion, send to our patients as, as part of our Medicaid population and enroll them cost with, with, with a cost of zero to them in the program. And what we appreciated was, was a, a handful of things. One, we were, we were very purposeful in rendering our program identically um, for Medicaid patient populations, as we've done for Medicare, as we've done for commercial, as we've done for young, for old, for urban, for rural, because it works. It works the way it's designed and um, to, to do anything different, more than anything else, I think would, would imply some, some bias on our part to think that certain patient populations wouldn't benefit. And in fact, uh, it proved to us once again that um, um, our Medicaid patient population responded beautifully within our program, particularly with the, with the financial assistance that was rendered by the, by the FCC funding. We targeted 1,000 patients. We now have more than 4,000 patients in the program. But the other thing, and this sort of gets us back to um, you know, the discussion about the active role in their care, um, both anecdotally and, and objectively, um, this particular, um, I would argue, you know, in many respects, previously marginalized patient population within the, the friendly confines of, of traditional healthcare um, were even more empowered, more engaged. And, you, and I mentioned our net promoter score, uh, which, which sits at around 87 for our, our overall program. Our net promoter score for our Medicaid patient population is 91. Wow. Um, and and that's, that gives me a warm feeling inside every time I say it, because I think that's just a, uh, a remarkable testament um, to the great team that we have put together that reaches patients. You know, this is a digital program, but the, the real reason for its success is the process and the people. And to have those people work shoulder to shoulder um, with our patients. We've had our health coaches get invited to weddings of, of their patients. I mean, this is a digital program and we're getting people on the other side of that digital divide that have become uh, really close confidants of the patients they take care of. And so I think it, it goes all the way back to, you know, maybe it was my first point about um, meeting the patients on their time, in their space, um, and they are motivated to do it. Um, if, you, if you manage that correctly, you will reap all the benefits that you're expecting to see down the line from a net promoter score perspective, from a blood pressure management perspective, from a, from a patient satisfaction and activation perspective, because you have shown them that you respect um, how busy and how purposeful their lives are, that you're going to reach into theirs rather than re requesting or requiring that they come into it, yours. It's fascinating that you're using the net promoter score for, for your digital program. I, I was wondering, are you also collecting NPS for any of your traditional care programs? Or is that something you're only doing right now in the digital world? We're halfway into that story. So, you know, we had been using it 
um, I would say sort of in a forward thinking again from Dr. Milani and others early on, because we figured our peer groups um, for digital medicine aren't, aren't going to be traditional healthcare plans and traditional hospitals. We want to make sure that our digital medicine program is as comfortable to somebody as, as Instacart and Amazon and, and others. And so we wanted to sort of speak their language and compare ourselves that way. As a result of that, and I think just a, a general direction that the industry is going um, to, to look at how patients appreciate something that they're using, we're starting to test now NPS across a lot of our other products. So uh, when you have me back next time, I'll give you some updates on how our NPS sits for some other things within our health system. That's great. And, and actually, just to put it into context for people, you, you mentioned the average NPS that you're having with the digital program is 87 and 91 with the Medicaid patients. 87.5 is higher than Amazon's NPS, higher than Apple's NPS, higher than Uber's NPS. Like it's, it's a phenomenal score. So just need, well, thank you. I need to shed some noticing. light on we that. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, Josh, did you have anything else? Otherwise, we can jump over to the Fast Five. Uh, let, let's do it. Let's jump over. Awesome. Okay. So David, uh, fast five is basically five questions to get to know you better for our audience. Uh, first question we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Okay. So my, my favorite book, my favorite book of all time is the catcher in the rye by JD Salinger. And, um, I, I read it for the first time in high school. It was, it was, uh, gifted to me by my grandmother who was a high school liter uh, uh, literature teacher. And I, I remember well, um, written inside the, the book jacket, you know, Dear David, my students particularly loved this book when it was banned by the, by the local school board, love, you know. And so I think I probably, you know, appreciated it for the first time because I felt somewhat scandalous as a, as a 15-year-old reading about Holden Caulfield. And I don't know that I necessarily relate to him as, as a, the protagonist of, of the story, but um, still a great read. So if and, and I think part of the canon of, of literature. Um, I will say that I am now reading, and in fact, I was reaching, I have it right here in front of me. Um, it may not show up well with the blur. Leading with Gratitude, um, yeah. which is, uh, uh, I, I am really enjoying it. We've got a small group of us that, that work here together. Julie Henry, who I'd mentioned, my, my dyad partner um, in digital health, um, and Denise Bazo, our new chief digital officer. You know, we are all really focused um, on gratitude and, and um, particularly sort of weathering the, the pandemic and now coming out on the other side of it, we hope, um, just to be so thankful of, of the, the chances that we've had to work with great people and continue to ride um, you know, that wave. And so I think it's a, I'm really enjoying the book. I've already given another copy to a colleague, um, haven't even finished it myself yet, but leading with gratitude seems like a winner right now. That's awesome. I love that. Um, question two is this one is specific for you, David, but I know that before getting into medicine, you had uh, at least entertained the idea of possibly becoming a cartoonist. And so <laughs> I'm just curious, are you still doodling and drawing or is that something in the past now? I should probably show some examples of that too on the desk, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, so I can't, it's, a, it's, it's probably a running joke uh, amongst my colleagues here is that I can't not scribble something. It's mostly flowcharts and Venn diagrams and arrows and, and asterisks and all sorts of other gobbledygook now, rather than Garfield, which I learned to, to draw for the first time when I was a kid. Um, but I find that's a pretty good way to keep my mind focused and always has been. So I was the, I'm a very visual learner. 
Um, and so when I took notes in high school and college, I'd you know be doodling little things on the side to help me remember it. And it, it stuck with me. So, uh, and, and there's actually a lot of, when I learned neuroanatomy, um, not to imply that I know everything about neuroanatomy, but when I, when I learned it and studied it as part of being a neurologist, um, neuroanatomy is very algorithmic, right? A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D. And, um, and, and that was almost all drawing for me to be able to draw these different neural pathways in the human body. And um, so, you know, I guess uh, fortuitous that um, my intent to become a cartoonist when I was in grade school somehow made its way into medicine and now telemedicine and digital health, but I still like to doodle. Whenever you're doing, uh, you know, academic presentations or conference presentations, you should probably just do all your slides and doodle. Like, I don't think anyone's done that yet. You, you should do that. <laughs> all, stick, all stick figures. And yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll, let me take, let me, let me write that down. <laughs> That's great. Uh, question three, David, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Ooh, super, super strength, super speed, or read people's minds. So I have um, two two boys who are in um, middle school. My oldest son is graduating um, from eighth grade tomorrow, so he's moving into high school, and my my other son's uh, going into eighth grade next year. And these are the types of good sort of superhero conversations that you have with middle school boys. Um, so so it was super strength, super speed, and Mind ability reading. to read people's minds, or ability. So I don't want to read people's minds. I don't think I have enough confidence to know what to want to know exactly what people are always <laughs> thinking about me or, or someone else around them. So I, I, I'm, I think ignorance is bliss from that perspective. So I don't want to read other people's minds. Speed versus strength. So I think, um, I think speed. I think um, maybe that makes sense in in telemedicine too. I, better to be able to get to a, a, an endpoint and have a a say to do ratio that's high because you're 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 fast to make decisions and fast to accomplish things rather than just brute force to beat it over people's heads. I've probably learned that amongst my physician colleagues too is be fast with an answer and and and, and make sure it works. Don't try to ram it down someone's throat. So super speed. Yeah, I love it. Um, awesome. And question four: What is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? So meaning other like other non clinicians like some, something that's sort of like what, what's a trade secret yeah, it could be that or it could even be other clinicians that you know have a, a completely different perspective than you do oh okay that's interesting okay um all right so i'm going to answer it like what's something that's probably common in healthcare that maybe people outside of healthcare <laughs> don't know and this is this is i'll I know that this podcast will be listened to and watched far and wide. So I guess I won't be able to deny this, but um, doctors Google things. <laughs> we do. Um, and sometimes it's because we don't remember what we, what we think we wanted to remember right there in that moment. Um, and a lot of times it's because we want to put ourselves in the shoes of our patients. Mm -hmm. So if, if I know that my patients are Googling cure for Parkinson's disease, which I tell you they are almost every day, it behooves me to Google what's a good cure for Parkinson's disease, even though I know darn well we don't have one yet, um, because that's what our patients are doing, and they're going to read that stuff, and you need to be able to understand what's out there. So I think the combinations of understanding what's out there in the sort of the lay literature to keep uh, to keep in touch with that sort of whole theme today of, of, of making connections with your patients is important, and sometimes Dr. Google's right, so we Google things. 
That's great. That's a really valuable insight. I, I've never thought about it from the empathetic lens of actually understanding, you know, what, what kind of snake oil is being pushed out there yeah. and how do you, you know, figure that out? That's great. Uh, the last question that we have is more of a pandemic lockdown related question, but what is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? And have been able to maintain, right? Sure, like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not, not one that you took on for a week. And, right, so like all of us, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to bike to work every day. Um, all right. So I, I've, I've gotten into backyard birds a bit and I, I am no birder by any stretch of the imagination. I'm, I, I shouldn't even call myself a bird watcher for the most part. Um, but I, uh, I enjoy sort of piddling around the yard. Um, I like to, to sort of see the immediate, um, you know, benefits of, 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 trimming something or hanging something. Um, and so I hung a bunch of bird feeders periodically and I'd find another bird feeder on sale somewhere. So now backyards for a handful of bird feeders. And, and I started to appreciate the birds that would come through and sort of the personalities of them. So like, you know, we have, we have a few blue jays, blue jays are coming down here and they're sort of, they're sort of the, they're the ones who have the super strength. I think the, 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 the blue jays come in and sort of assert themselves and then we've got these little um, thrushes and uh, brown sparrows and others that they're sort of the super speed, maybe they're sort of, they zip in and zip out and, and, and then we have squirrels. And yeah. <laughs> um, so I've, along with being infatuated with sort of the birds that have found, we have a, we have two, we have two cardinal families. We have two male and female cardinals oh. that seem to have uh, have found found each other for life that that and, and they're they're separate but they have their own they have their own lives in our backyard but we've got squirrels and so um i have not yet been able to outwit any of the new orleans squirrel population um be it with uh different squirrel proof yeah the grease on the poles or yeah that yeah, yeah i have I, I don't need poles i haven't sort of bolted into into mm. fences and whatnot and trees and so i i frankly i've given the squirrels a bit of an advantage and maybe deep down i'm sort of okay to watch <laughs> them rooting for cohabitate them. with yeah. my birds um but it it's it's still fun I, i've really i've become you know that 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 crusty old neighbor that you know the, get out of my yard squirrels um but maybe i do like them there anyway. <laughs> that's that's amazing david i have to ask have you talked with denise Bassow about uh birding so, um, not, not enough, okay. not enough. I understand that, that, um, that, that she has a little bit of experience in the same. So Denise, I'm glad you mentioned, I'd mentioned her a few minutes ago. She, she's probably on like day 150 here or something. She has not been, um, long with our organization. I hope she will be here forever. She's been, you know, a remarkable addition came in with clarity of thought, a, a dynamic strategy and an all around terrific leader. Um, and so, but probably some culture shock for her coming down to New Orleans. Um, and I know that you had a chance to have her on the podcast as well. Did she? Did, we did. She um, brought a birding, which is why. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you: is, is there is there a birding club at Osher? Because you, you both have the same answer. So. It sounds like it sounds like there may be a club of two now. Um, she was first, so I guess she'll be the she'll be the president, and I'll be the vice president of the of the the digital medicine. Burning yeah, that's right well, well, so, so, someone else mentioned burning too so i think burning is actually the lead right alan it might have the most yeah i think three people have now said burning yeah i oh. did i even went so far as to to buy the 
you know, the North American bird, you know, guide that I keep oh, yeah, yeah. You know, right, right next to it. Although it, admittedly, again, I, I haven't recognized enough of them. I'm not so sure that I have a terrific variety of birds that show up in my backyard in New Orleans, but the ones that are there are really, really lovely. Oh, that's cool. I, I like the idea of, you know, taking a look at the ordinary things around you, but appreciating them in a different light. And it really took the pandemic to get us all to kind of slow down and, and recognize that. Um, well, David, I, you know, I'm just looking at the time. I know we said we keep this short in the hour. So I, I just, you know, being mindful of your time, we should uh, head out. But I wanted to thank you very much for coming on the show today. You um, shared a ton of wisdom with us. You uh, mentioned that our fast five question had one of them that uh, middle school boys would ask. So we really appreciate that. <laughs> but no, in all honesty, you really did share a lot of great stuff with our audience today. And I learned a lot and I hope they did as well. Um, so I just want to say thank you again. Um, you can also find David on Twitter at David underscore Houghton. That's H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. Uh, and that's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, visit www.seamless.md. Thanks, David, so much. Thanks, David. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it.